All over the country, voters in America's largest cities are deciding that they want to reform the justice system from the inside out. And they're doing that in great part by ousting horrible district attorneys and replacing them with brilliant new ones. It's happened in Philly. It happened in St. Louis and Boston and San Antonio and Dallas. But suddenly, in each of those places, the state governments after allowing district attorneys to run the local justice systems for over 100 years, state governments are suddenly trying to steal control back and limit the power of the district attorney. And you're never going to guess who's helping them. Listen, if we didn't live in the age of Trump, this story would be a national scandal. I'm going to unpack it, explain it, and then tell us what we can do about it. Let's dig in. This is Sean King. And you were listening to the 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 breakdown. The breakdown. The breakdown. If you're an avid listener of the breakdown, then you already know that the United States is the incarceration nation. We lock up more people, both in terms of the total number of people and the percentage of our citizens not just in any country in the world, but we lock up more people in this country than any country in the history of the world. Over 10 million people are locked up per year here. And we have more laws than any country in the world. We have more prisons, more prosecutors, and more police departments than any country in the world. And all of those people, prisons, prosecutors, and police departments, All of those people and systems support a complex industry of providers of billions of dollars of goods and services from thousands of for-profit companies, including many of the prisons and detention centers themselves. And I have to start here today because I need you to understand that capitalism and the industries that come out of it, they will always fight to the death to survive. And incarceration is one of the oldest, largest, most stable, most profitable industries in this nation. It is an industry. And millions of people are making their living off of it. And millions more aren't directly making a living off of it, but they are directly benefiting off of the consequences of mass incarceration. I don't have time to completely unpack it today, but I need you to understand that gentrification and mass incarceration are like two peas in a pod. They're not even distant cousins. They're siblings. And so whenever we fight back against mass incarceration, you have to understand that millions of people rely on it for their income and not just their day-to-day income, but often their wealth and generational wealth. And when we fight back, people in power, both politicians and corporations alike, you best believe that they're not going to walk away with a whimper. It's not happening. And what we're starting to notice across the country is that now that our district attorneys are getting into office and completely changing the game by refusing to use the testimony of corrupt cops, Now that these great district attorneys are getting into office and refusing to criminalize poverty, 
refusing to criminalize drug addiction and homelessness and mental health. What we're starting to see are two primary groups of people fighting back. And I need to break it down for you. Let me break it down. Break it down. If you ask a Deep South conservative, they will tell you that the Civil War, which was the bloodiest, deadliest war ever waged on this soil, where over a million people died and a million more lost at least a single limb. If you ask a Deep South conservative, they will tell you that the Civil War wasn't about slavery at all. Of course it was. But they will tell you that it was about the rights of local governments and local voters to control their own cities and states without outside interference. Now, any historian will tell you that the Civil War was absolutely about slavery, and it was about the South fighting to want to be able to maintain slavery. And to be more clear, it was about the South and white people in the South wanting to keep a million enslaved Africans in bondage because they were forcing them to work for free. That's what the Civil War was all about. Now, they disguised it as, you know, in the future, saying, hey, it wasn't really about slavery. We just like, we really, really like. We like so much that we will fight to the death for it. We like the ability to just make decisions for ourselves. But even after the Civil War, for the next 100-plus years, from the 1860s until the 1960s, conservatives in the South, month after month, year after year, fought against federal interference in their governments because they said, this was what they said, anytime the government tried to intervene, particularly if it had anything to do with equality or racial justice, governments in the South would say, hey, we believe in states' rights and local control of government. Just, you know, get out of here. Stop interfering with what we're doing, all right? And for 200 years in this country, just go with me here for a second. For 200 years in this country, conservatives said they preferred local control of government and that they hated outside interference with their local government. They said they went to war for this. They believed in it so much. And I find that really, really interesting that they believed so much in local control of government. Because now that we have grassroots movements springing up all over the country, seizing control of the local justice system in cities all over the nation by ousting their horrible conservative district attorneys and to be clear, when I say conservative, I mean conservative Democrats and conservative Republicans. Now that we have these grassroots movements replacing these horrible district attorneys, now that we are ousting them, and these are when we're ousting often horrible, heartless district attorneys, guess what we're starting to see? In Texas, in Massachusetts, in Pennsylvania, we're starting to see the conservative governors and attorney generals and state legislatures in those states all of a sudden stop caring about local rights and local voters and local governments. It's almost as if 
the Civil War was actually about slavery. It's almost as if they fought against the civil rights movement because they hated black folk. Because now, all of a sudden, that local voters are voting out horrible district attorneys and are putting in women and men and just amazing, compassionate people into these positions that are that are determined to reform and change the system from the inside out. All of a sudden, we're seeing conservative government officials now say, hey, in essence, we know we claim that we hate outside government interference in the local government, but now we want to interfere in local government and limit the power of district attorneys. This has literally never happened before, at least not on this scale, where local voters, often with huge mandates, voted in amazing new leaders to serve as district attorney, but states and state officials are now, and this has just started to happen over the past 45 to 60 days, states and state officials are moving to strip the powers away from new district attorneys now that they see we're able to do good, compassionate work in those positions. And they're doing this based on campaigns of lies and complete fabrications. They're doing this saying that these new district attorneys don't value public safety and that crime waves are exploding because these new DAs are in office. And that is happening absolutely nowhere. It's a complete fabrication. And here's what's going to blow your mind. Guess who is fueling the movement behind trying to discredit and defame these new progressive men and women who are reforming the justice system? The local media. Let me break it down. It's the breakdown, the breakdown, the breakdown, the breakdown, the breakdown, break it down now. When cities begin to adopt meaningful criminal justice reforms, the local media plays a huge role in the public's perception of the success or failure of those reforms. Let me try to explain what I'm saying. The local media is often the primary means by which people assess the safety of their city. And local journalists not only determine what aspects of the justice system that they cover, they often provide the framework through which people understand criminal justice policies. And they largely guide whether communities perceive their justice system to be fair and effective or largely unjust. The media, the local media, plays a huge role in how people understand what their justice system is doing and how safe they are in their city. Unfortunately, though, most local news media outlets follow the old adage that if it bleeds, it leads. And what happens is that when meaningful criminal justice reforms pass, and new district attorneys start to advance great new policies that actually make the justice system more fair. The local media regularly let police departments and police unions come on air or speak in the newspapers 
to uncritically perpetuate lies that randomly sometimes link recent criminal justice reforms to a particular crime or tragedy. And then local journalists, when police departments and their union reps start to spew these lies, local journalists rarely push back, rarely investigate the lies that were told by police before repeating them or printing them, and then often cherry-pick data to paint the most alarming picture and then bury contradictory facts. And we see this, listen to me, we see this happening all over the country where we elect progressive new district attorneys and police unions and police departments speak to local newspapers and local media outlets to put them on blast and basically say, this new district attorney is making our city less safe. And in the entire country, no two cities and their respective local media outlets have done more to perpetuate the lies of local police departments and police unions than that of Boston and Philadelphia. And it's been disgusting from the day that Rachel Rollins became DA of Boston and Suffolk County and Larry Krasner became the district attorney of Philadelphia. Because in Boston, district attorney Rachel Rollins, who was my friend, our team at Real Justice fought hard to elect her. She loves the city and wants the city to be safe. It's her home. She has stated that she's flat out going to stop prosecuting a long list of low-level nonviolent offenses. She said that she's going to stop requiring cash bail for most nonviolent offenders and that from this point forward, and this is beautiful and brilliant, every district attorney should do this, from this point forward, her office is going to consider the role of drug addiction and mental illness and even poverty before they charge, before they rather make charging and sentencing decisions. Of course you should consider drug addiction and mental illness before you charge and sentence someone. And of course, like clockwork, the local police departments hate it because they often measure success by arrest and convictions alone, which is a major problem. And because TV stations and newspapers like the Boston Globe get so many of their stories from police, they often just parrot and repeat whatever police tell them. For instance, this past July 6th in the Boston Globe, the Globe published an article about Rachel Rollins' diversion of people away from jail and prison. And to criticize those policies, the article relied on the local police union, the Boston Police Union president, Mike Leary. They relied on just random lies from him. I mean, complete fabrications. Mike Leary kept saying all these unsubstantiated claims that District Attorney Rollins' policies are going to drive open drug dealing and increases in violence, violent crime. There's no evidence of that. And the Globe didn't probe his claim or push back. It didn't note that there was no evidence for what he was saying. It merely just printed whatever lie the police union wanted to say, leaving Leary's claim that, quote, here's what the police union said, under her, quote, crime will go up and shootings will occur. Now, that would have been the time for the reporter in that story to say, 
What are you basing that on exactly? What evidence do you have for that? But they don't say it. They just literally allow the police union to say whatever it is they want to say. And we see the same thing happening in Philadelphia. In Philly, our friend, District Attorney Larry Krasner, who Real Justice also campaigned and fought to be DA there, he's against the criminalization of poverty. And he's against the use of cash bail in general, particularly for people who simply can't afford it, such that there's basically a justice system for people with money and a justice system for people who don't have it. And Larry Krasner has said that he wants to reduce the prosecution of theft under $500, that he wants to decline to prosecute marijuana cases and most prostitution cases, that he wants to shorten the amount of time that people are on probation and parole, that he wants to eliminate a lot of the needless fines and fees. Not only that, and this is, this is the root of a lot of the frustration of police there in Philadelphia. But D.A. Larry Krasner was the first district attorney in the nation to make a public list of all the corrupt and racist police officers whose testimony he would no longer allow in court. And like clockwork, anytime a crime now happens in Philadelphia, the police department blames it on Larry Krasner. And guess who prints those lies? Over and over again, the local newspaper, the Philadelphia Inquirer. Let me share a very simple but profound action step that we're going to take together today, all right? Action, 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 steps, take action, 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 steps. Today, we're going to encourage you to take back some power and some agency for yourself We not only want to challenge the Boston Globe and the Philadelphia Inquirer, but we want to challenge newspapers all over the country. And we're going to do that by simply asking you to write your local newspaper, your local editor-in-chief, your local reporters and staff writers, and ask them to share with you the policy of their newspaper on allowing police officers and police unions to make unproven, unsubstantiated claims. Don't just write a letter to the editor. We want you to ask staff and reporters at your local paper to give you the actual policies of the newspaper on simply accepting what police departments and police unions say at face value. They are not unbiased, and they have proven themselves over and over and over again to be perpetually dishonest. And often, they have every motivation to be dishonest about what's going on inside of their police departments. So what are the policies? What are the interview policies and procedures inside of your local newspaper at taking what police departments and police unions and their representatives say at face value without pushing back? What's the evidence? What's the proof of what they're saying? Are they accepting what police officers and police unions say just because they have a longstanding relationship with those police departments, even though people have been convicted and jailed from those police departments and found to be fraudulent and problematic over and over and over and over again? What are the policies? We just want to see them. And when you find those policies, we want you to email us directly at thebreakdown at thenorthstar.com. 
email us at thebreakdown at thenorthstar.com. And if you are a part of the Breakdown Crew at thebreakdowncrew.com, we're going to email you a couple of email addresses that we definitely want you to try out. All right? Break it down. The break, the break, the break, the break, the break, the break down. Thank you all for making it all the way through this episode of The Breakdown. And if you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, we'll be right back here every single weekday, breaking down important news stories and issues and taking action steps. And we'd love for you to subscribe on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or CastBox or Stitcher or whatever app it is that you're using to listen to this podcast. Please share the podcast with your friends and family because our next big goal is to get to 100,000 subscribers and we're not going to get there without you. Also, have you left a review yet? And if not, why not? What are you waiting on? Because on Apple Podcasts, We now have over 9,655 star reviews, but we're aiming for 10,000 and we're just about 350 reviews away. So we still want to hear from each of you. Please leave your best, most detailed review when you get some time. Of course, thank you to the nearly 30,000 founding members of the North Star whose generosity even makes this podcast possible. We love and appreciate each of you so very much. And if you love this podcast and you want to support our work or you want to see the show notes and transcripts for each episode, we'd love it if you'd consider becoming a founding member of our community. And you can do that today at thenorthstar.com. There we not only have our podcast, but we have hundreds, now nearly a thousand original articles and stories and commentaries from some of the leading scholars and thinkers and journalists in the world. Lastly, a shout out to our associate producer, Lissandra, and our podcasting director and senior producer, Willis, for their hard work on this and every episode. And today, a special shout out to the entire team at The Appeal for providing some of the content and insight into really the crisis that we're experiencing with district attorneys. We appreciate each of you. Take care, everybody. Break it down.